getting these notes from these young people to think that kind of violation of dignity, that kind of violation of respect, this idea that you will have your name torn through the mud. <laughs> you will have things that are private and personal about you exposed. You, you can be harassed and, and literally burned into the ground. And that's just like what the internet is. Like that's normal. That is really scary and really it breaks my heart when I read these notes. Hi, everybody. This is How Tech Becomes Law, a public interest tech podcast about technology, public policy, and career advice. We are your co-hosts, Jingyan Zhang and Drew Gupta. This week, we have a conversation with Trisha Prabhu from Rethink about addressing cyberbullying and other harms on social media. Trisha Prabhu is the 21-year-old founder and CEO of Rethink, a patented app tackling cyberbullying. She's also an undergrad student at Harvard. Next year, she'll begin her postgrad study at the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Trisha's driving vision is to build an internet that's empowering, kind space for young people everywhere. Hey, thanks so much for joining, Trisha. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about Rethink? Yes. So Rethink is a social enterprise with the mission of cultivating a new generation of responsible digital citizens. And we do that through our flagship tech product, the Rethink app, which works to detect offensive content before it's sent and give young people a chance to rethink. So the goal is to try and put some friction in the digital experience so that young people who are often on the internet in environments that are very emotionally driven or intended to provoke a response can actually take that second to pause, to review, to reflect, and make a decision that they can live with in 24 hours, in 24 weeks, and many years in the future. So it's fairly simple. You download the app. It's a keyboard that replaces your mobile device's default keyboard. And then it works across all of the apps on your phone, from email to social media, to detect the content and give you a chance to rethink. That's great. So can you tell our listeners about the impact that Rethink has had and what do you see for its future? Yes. So it started when I was just 13 years old. I was a kid. I came to the issue with personal experience. I had seen it impact my friends and folks in my community, but I wanted to do something. I had no idea what something meant, but that launched this two-year journey to discover the idea, test the product, and then ultimately build an app. And since then, I've been incredibly privileged and honored to be able to work with amazing partners like Scholastic, the U.S. State Department, Boosterthon, to be able to introduce the technology and our curriculum to young people all over the globe. I think right now we've touched young people in 134 nations, which is incredible, mind-boggling to me. More importantly, you know, in the conversations that I have with young people who use Rethink, the thing that really stands out to me is the fact that many of them feel like it helps them make respectful communication a habit. And that really gets at our, our long-term theory of change, right? This idea that by giving people the tools to be more responsible and thoughtful online, we can not only stop cyberbullying in the moment, we can help teach young people these skills that will make them better digital citizens for life. So that kind of long-term impact gets me, gets me really, really excited. So that's really interesting. And I mean, just more broadly speaking, what you're highlighting is issues around content moderation on social media. I mean, we know Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter are just hubs of everything from cyberbullying to misinformation to even election interference. From your perspective, what's going wrong? Is it the technology? Is it the business model? Do we need more regulation? How do we solve this problem? 
I asked the million dollar the million dollar question, <laughs> and I wish I could I could give you the the million dollar answer, but I, I think my honest answer is it's a little bit of a combination of all three, right? The technology, the economics, the business model, and the law, right? On the tech side, certainly I would say, given my background and the work that I do with Rethink, part of it has to do with internet design. The big issue that we've really tried to troubleshoot is this idea that on the internet, especially for young people who've grown up in the world where the internet has always been our reality. I mean, I really can't remember a time before the internet. For us, it can feel like anything we say on there just doesn't matter. Like it just disappears into this void. And that lack of digital literacy education and the way the internet is structured, I think, leads young people especially not to realize the kind of footprint that they leave and the kind of impact that they can have. So I think that's part of it. I think the economics is a huge part of it. At the end of the day, we say, oh my gosh, Facebook's doing such a terrible job on content moderation. Why? Well, they have an obligation to their shareholders. And that obligation is to make the most money possible, which they do, as research has shown, by promoting content that is inflammatory, by promoting content that, that evokes reactions. And that generally tends to be content that's false or content that harasses or hurts other people. So Facebook, I think, is certainly not guiltless in this, but I do think they find themselves in a bind, right? Because how can they consciously say we're doing the right thing for our shareholders when addressing some of the platform's key issues really means ultimately getting fewer interactions? That's just the bottom line. And then you, you have laws. And of course, the, the big one that comes to mind in this space is Section 230, which was a law designed back in the, the late 90s to try and really unleash the power of the internet but by basically saying, okay, platforms, you're not liable for what your users say on the platform has, has really just eliminated any real incentive for a platform to act, right? They're not going to get in trouble if they do, but they're also not going to get in trouble if they don't. <laughs> and that can lead to, I think, a lot of space to, to, to morally wiggle, right? And, and to say, well, we don't have to. So, so I think it's a, it's a little bit of everything, which is perhaps one of the reasons why it's so hard to solve. <laughs> From your perspective, as someone who built a piece of technology that in many ways is actually about changing engagement and potentially even preventing engagement, because mm -hmm. you're asking people, hey, take a moment, rethink what you're writing. How can business models be built for essentially trying to have content that's positive, but still be monetizable? So it's, it's a great question. And I think it gets at the fact that we have a need for regulation. I'm actually not super convinced that there is some moonshot business model that's going to create content that is all flowers and hearts um, and also ensures that platforms has the best bottom line possible. And so I think that's why we need to change the terms of the relationship. Right now, Facebook is only obligated to its shareholders. But I'm really interested in legal models like fiduciary duty, for example, right, where Facebook would also be obligated to its users, given the fact that these social media platforms are one, something that we all use and we all kind of have to use in order to exist in the 21st century. And two, Facebook deals with a lot of our personal information and can make a huge impact on us, right? I think that's something we've learned in the last five years. Both of those things, I think, would really qualify social media platforms to potentially ha have some sort of fiduciary obligation, this legal obligation to treat their users with a certain level of respect to ensure that they're ultimately acting in the best interest of the user. Once you introduce that obligation, it becomes a lot easier. I think it actually enables Facebook to invest in some of the moderation practices or moderation ideas that I'm sure they've had, but probably have not gone for because right now they have one obligation and that's to their shareholders. So I, I'm actually, I think 
There are, you know, other spaces like privacy, where I think you could potentially see other kinds of business models, right, where you avoid data monetization, but you have a product that actually costs something, right, or you're charging users. I mean, I think that there, there's, there's room for maybe more business model innovation. But here, I think it's just a matter of we need law to step in. And so the, the question is, how, how do we do that? How do we get around some of the challenges that we have with the First Amendment? And how do we think about the politics of the fact that these are American companies, right? And so it's going to get, it's going to be very hard for, for Congress ultimately to act and say, hey, most successful companies in American history, we don't like you, <laughs> right? So that I think is the, the real solution. So I think you've laid out some really interesting challenges. As someone who is then researching these issues for your senior thesis, also working at Rethink on these topics and actually going to dive in even deeper as a Rhodes Scholar uh, at Oxford starting this fall, where do you see the solutions coming from? Yes. So I, I think the, the solutions are going to be both on the, the user side and the platform side, right? So the user side um, is really going to be all about, to your point, right, changing engagement. And so Rethink is a great example of that, right? Getting people to think more critically about engagement. I think we should also be thinking about what age groups, for example, should be allowed to engage on what kinds of platforms. Facebook, I think, for example, lots of social media companies have tried pretty unsuccessfully to say only if you're 13 or older can you participate in our online communities. We know for a fact that that's not true, right? So I think changing the, the quality, the quantity of engagement on the user side is going to be key. And then on the platform side, uh, I think part of it is going to be law influencing how, how platforms operate. I think part of it also is going to be hopefully advances in technology that are going to make platforms more effective. I mean, engaging in some of this like Good Samaritan moderation, right, where they're really trying, but it's very hard because there is so much content out there. And I think another part of it is definitely going to be hopefully the changing face of tech on the platform side. Today, a lot of the problems that we see, these tech society clashes, are a result of a very homogenous group of people not thinking about how a set of technologies are gonna affect disparate groups. So I'm hopeful that as we see, hopefully more diversity um, on the platform side, that can lead, trickle down to not one or two specific solutions, but a culture shift um, that, that also hopefully shifts priorities, right? In a way that is consistent with the public interest um, and the interests of consumers. And so that brings up like an interesting point, right? We're seeing a culture shift maybe even more broadly amongst our own society where with increasing misinformation, hate speech, disinformation, it's kind of a new normal here in, in, in America. I, for one, like as a, as a relatively young American, feel desensitized to, to parts of kind of our common language around like, yeah, there are some people who don't believe in science. There are some people who don't believe in vaccines. There are some people who don't believe in, in climate change. And then on the flip side, there's some people who don't believe in, in certain economic policies or social policies. It's just, it's just normal. Mm-hmm. What about like for, for us, like we haven't experienced this earlier era of optimism around the future of the internet that we might have seen in the 90s or in the early 2000s when section, section 230 and such were first written uh, kind of before Mark Zuckerberg became like a hero <laughs> to a villain and I don't know, maybe back to a hero again in the metaverse, who knows what's going to yeah. happen. Like <laughs> how do we reconcile this new normal with a hope to shift away from it? Yeah, it's it's such a great question. And I think a really important one. This new normal scares me for a lot of reasons. It scares me, one, because I think that it is pushing away a lot of young people and a lot of talent that would otherwise be really excited to be working on creating a safe, awesome metaverse, 
right? Or be really excited to think about digital communities that can help foster revolution and citizen empowerment in autocracies, right? Like, I think that there are so many applications of technology, certainly as a technologist myself, that have so much potential for social good. And I think this new normal where we recognize that, of course, it's technology's role, right, to help create all of these harms. That's that's just naturally what tech does. And that is a lot of the messaging that we also hear from Silicon Valley, right, is, ah, well, we can't expect any different. This is just what it is. Right. I think that is unfortunately pushing a lot of people that would otherwise be invested in creating really awesome solutions to other spaces. And and that scares me because I think if we don't have young people who are excited about the potential of technology, that is going to leave one, a very small group of people, right, creating solutions and driving our digital future. That's not a good thing. And then two, uh, we lose out on just innovation and discovery and creation um, in a way that that I think can can have ripple effects um, that we can't even imagine. Right. So I think that's one way that it scares me. The other way that it scares me is is certainly that the fact that we have this new normal, the fact that we we can't even agree on on certain aspects of our reality, I think is is really dangerous for our democracy, right? It, it's so funny to me because I'm I'm 21 and that means that I have I've seen now four US presidents through my lifetime and it's incredible how we've gone from 2000 when I was born, even then an election that was plagued by problems <laughs> with Vice President Al Gore v. Bush. And, and still even then we were able to, to uphold some sort of legitimacy in our election to today where it's like we cannot even agree on the most basic things. Um, and I think one of the first rules of democracy is you need to have a clear understanding of where we're all at, right? We need to understand what we're working off of um, because otherwise there's never going to be any way to, to compare. There's never going to be any fair competition. I worry a lot about this new normal, leaving young people not only you know, disillusioned about technology, but disillusioned about democracy, disillusioned about the future of the United States, disillusioned about our, our greatness and our potential to, to lead in the world. And I think we're feeling a lot of that, that negativity right now. And that, that scares me because I, I, I do believe that the U.S. You know, is, is destined for great things, can and, and will do great things. But that is a direct product of us as citizens believing that and working towards those great things. So. Um, not not a very positive status update, but <laughs> but who knows? Maybe if we we work through these problems, we can we can make some we can make some progress. Well, so you bring up an interesting point, and I and I want to kind of maybe incorrectly or correctly conflate it with something, but we we're seeing this big question around folks are folks are disillusioned by big media, big tech. Mm-hmm. We're not really we don't we don't really know who to trust anymore. And so there's this search for authenticity and that's where you mm. see things like, I mean, Vine, I think started this and then like <laughs> TikTok, Instagram TikTok. reels, right. Mm-hmm. Um, YouTube was kind of at the forefront and now YouTube's kind of being taken over by big media and such. Like there's this element of this disillusionment and disinformation is driven by your, your big media companies, whether it's News Corp yep. or whether it's CNN, who, depending on who you're talking to, or if it's like advertising companies but we're but we're searching for authenticity. What mm-hmm. is that? How does that play out as we see sh- social media's evolve over the next few years? Yeah, it's a it's a really really great question, and I think you're you're right. As social media evolves, I'm curious to see to what extent how social media companies and how creators are going to deal with balancing voices that are are not traditionally represented that are now finally getting their day in the sun with 
voices that are are trying to get likes by <laughs> by saying things that are not true, right? And it's in many ways another content moderation problem. So I'm excited to see, not excited, but I'm really curious to see what that balance is going to look like because I think it's going to be a really tricky one. And of course, as we enter, as we get get into more tricky forms of of media, right? Like TikTok, right? Images, videos, it becomes a lot harder to moderate. I speak from personal experience here, right? It becomes a yeah. lot harder to moderate. So it'll be curious to see how, how companies navigate those challenges. Yeah. There's always a question of how staged is the authenticity? Yes, there's a hundred percent. And I think that's a reason why the word performative is so big in the Gen Z vocabulary, right? Is because there is this huge emphasis on authenticity to the point where it's not clear <laughs> what's authentic <laughs> anymore, right? We went from saying it's not right. clear what's true anymore. So let's get something that's distinctive and unique to now we're not sure what's distinctive or unique anymore. So as you just brought up, I'm curious to get your take on how does content moderation evolve, especially going forward of where we think, right, you are working on text and specifically at, at the moment, it's about the text input that people are piping into messaging apps on social media. But as we evolve into now the TikToks and that's video and then in the future with the metaverse <laughs> and it's image and video and animation and augmented reality and it's yes. all sorts of content how does content moderation evolve how how does it keep up and make sure that the harms that we've been talking about from misinformation and cyberbullying and harassment um, are mitigated yeah so i mean this is something i actually think quite a bit about um, given my work and i think the future of moderation as we move forward is probably going to be a balance, certainly, between regulation and more engagement-focused moderations. But I think as we get into the metaverse, because of the fact that you're going to be trying to control for literally, I mean, just countless right types of interactions. I mean, I could be wearing a t-shirt in the metaverse that would be offensive, right? How do we even start to think about moderating something like that? I think what you're going to try to see is the replication of the kind of communities that have been created on sites like Reddit and Wikipedia. Uh, where you have community-led moderation that very much focuses on engagement and it is led by users, right? So that you avoid the issues of illegitimacy with the platform, trying to make all the decisions, as well as all of the logistical inefficiencies, right? I can't even imagine, like start to imagine meta controlling for every interaction that's happening in the metaverse. It's just not, not practical. But I think the beauty of what you see on sites like Reddit or Wikipedia, right, is a group of of people I could even imagine elected, right, to, to uphold a certain set of norms, a certain set of rules, and you create practices and you create norms that are actually really strong and, and really powerful and ensure that, that people are self-regulating, that people are thinking about their interactions, thinking about what's right or wrong, and ultimately adhering um, you know, to a set of values when they enter into these digital spaces and digital communities. So I think the big question that policymakers need to be asking themselves right now is, how do we set up platforms to be successful in that endeavor? And then I think what platforms need to be thinking about right now is, and this is something that I think they've really struggled with thus far, is how do we actually bring users into moderation? Facebook's oversight board is great, but at the end of the day, it's a bunch of really elite, educated people from all over the world deciding how the rest of us should behave on its platforms. And not to say that those people aren't credentialed, not that they you know, likely know more than the average American. They probably do. But there's something that I think inherently, especially here, that feels wrong about that, right? And I think, I think we all kind of think, where's the legitimacy in that? 
And how do we involve more user voices so that it feels more legitimate and people will actually pay attention, right? People will actually follow the rules. That's like the core assumption of a democracy, right? Is if all of those rules are technically coming from us, then we'll find them legitimate and we'll follow them. So I think that's something that platforms need to be thinking a little bit more about. And I think there's potentially a lot of power in those kinds of solutions. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we've seen new technologies come up and just make a big dramatic change in the way content is created and moderated in the past. Are there any historical examples that you can point to where we've had to figure out how to balance free speech and and also making sure no one's yelling fire in a theater? <laughs> yes. Yes, I love that you bring up that famous line in in the Supreme Court opinion. So this is actually the subject of my senior thesis work. I spent the, the last couple of months and will spend the next couple of months and just earlier today <laughs> have been I've been doing a lot of research into historically how um, the United States has thought about uh, free speech and the public interest and how to balance those things and how to come up with these these types of solutions or to end up where they do end up in in addressing kind of the the, the trade off. And one example that really comes to mind is fairness doctrine which was a policy of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, for several decades, mostly throughout the 20th century until the very end um, of the 20th century in the 1990s. Despite the fact that there was actually a lot of political interest in bringing Fairness Doctrine back, we saw the rise of conservative talk radio, and thus Fairness Doctrine really fell out. As a little context, Fairness Doctrine uh, was basically was a policy of the FCC that said, for the, the medium of broadcast, for radio, People that were using the airwaves, because the airwaves were limited, people that were using the airwaves would have to use them in a way that supported the public interest and in particular ensured that if one perspective was heard on an issue, another perspective would also be heard on an issue, one, and then two, important topics would be discussed. So airwaves needed to be used to discuss topics of public interest that people were really interested in and were concerned about so that Americans could be educated, informed, etc. Today, I think this is unthinkable to us, right? The idea of the government saying you must talk about a set of topics that are interesting. You must invite people to bring an opposing perspective to the table. Like I, I can't even, I can't even imagine people on both sides of the aisle saying, yeah, that, that sounds, that sounds workable, right? But, but I think what that example teaches us from history, and I think the beauty of fairness doctrine was that it was an example of a kind of balance between free speech and public interest that didn't actually try to say what the right kind of speech was, right? It didn't try to say, this is the right speech or this is the wrong speech. It just tried to say, let's introduce as much speech as possible and in, try and quality control the speech, <laughs> the speech a little bit, right? That was really the approach there. It wasn't, you can talk about vaccines or you can't talk about vaccines. You can't talk about this candidate, but you can't talk about that candidate. That was never the approach. So it was able to move away from content-based re restrictions to restrictions that were more about the, the quality um, of the speech that was on our radio airwaves. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from that example, because I think when we think about how to balance things in the social media age, for example, I think there's this immediate just gut reaction. Oh my gosh, we can't restrict speech, the First Amendment. It's impossible. And I think what things like Fairness Doctrine show us is the Supreme Court itself has said that that new mediums for speech that have the potential to reach lots of people and change minds and change hearts potentially have a different First Amendment standard, right? That there is room, that the First Amendment is not absolute, and, and there are ways to rein things in 
keep things from spiraling out of control without restricting certain perspectives or restricting certain voices, which is, I, I think, something to be legitimately concerned about. But I think Fairness Doctrine actually did a pretty good job, right, of, of keeping the, the, the important topics on the air, ensuring that Americans were heal- hearing from a diversity of perspectives. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that its repeal coincided with this growing polarization, right, in the U.S., where people were, were living in, in echo chambers that then just translated to the online world. Like, I'm always very interested to think about what an online world with fairness doctrine, <laughs> right, still in play could have looked like. So, so I think that is, that is just an example of something to me that, that really refutes the narrative that we often hear, which is it's just impossible to ever think of a way to regulate speech and think of the public interest because how do you do that without picking sides? Well, you don't have to pick sides. I mean, I think Fairness Doctrine was an example of that. So actually putting you on the spot for a second. So I believe also the Fairness Doctrine applied for both television and radio back in the day. And so uh-huh. do you think it should apply to social media? I don't. And, and the reason why is because they're fundamentally different mediums in the sense that broadcast and TV is one person speaking to another person, right? You have a speaker and you have a listener. Social media, everyone is speaking. Everyone is a speaker, right? And so that makes it really difficult to mandate something like, oh, if you hear one perspective, you must hear another perspective, right? That actually does happen, right? Today on Twitter, I open my feed. I see one perspective from one congressman and I see another perspective from another congressman. The difficulty I, d- I don't think necessarily has to do with the diversity of perspective or this or that. I think it's, it's just the, the sheer volume, right? And we've gone from being able to hear one voice clearly through, through many voices to just this huge amalgamation of voices that we cannot possibly hope to navigate. So we rely on an algorithm to do it for us. And that algorithm promotes content that, one, we already want to hear, and two, <laughs> may not actually be accurate, right? So I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the problems that plague social media were the same problems that plague television and radio. And I think they're just two fundamentally different models. So I'm not sure that, that Fairness Doctrine like, w- would be applicable. Like I can't imagine it. I, I just am not even sure how it would be implemented. I think, though, the premise that I think, for example, like, it, would it be such a bad thing, right, to like, think about like, regulation of like, what bots are spewing out on Twitter. That's a really good example of restricting, you know, speech, but not a type of speech, right? But instead saying, okay, if it's an inauthentic source, then we're concerned, right? And that could be, you know, no, on, on either side of the aisle, right? Or on any, any, you know, given topic. Well, so a quick question on this is, we do see this a little bit in other countries, right? The BBC is like that in, in the UK. What, what does this look like in other places? Is that something that we can emulate or is it, is it just too late here, as you said? I mean, I think the big distinction between, and I'm going to the, the UK next year, so I've actually uh, looked into this quite a bit. I think the big distinction between the UK and Europe, especially relative to the US, is they don't have a First Amendment. So they don't have a right to free speech written into their founding document. That makes it a lot easier. They have a lot more room with which to play because in the, the EU and Europe generally in the UK, the thought is that speech that excludes, speech that prevents people from entering the dialogue, even if that's more speech, it's more important to have inclusivity, to have more people a part of the dialogue, if, if that means less speech. In the U.S., it's exactly the opposite. We would much rather have more dialogue and fewer people. Um, so if we're excluding people, we're okay with that, just as long as it means more speech. So I, I, I think that, unfortunately, 
there isn't necessarily, there are quite a few things that the EU and the UK are doing that I don't think we could ever legally <laughs> hope to do here in the US. But I think it will be interesting to see, like the UK, especially since breaking away from the EU, I think has really tried to forge its own path on tech regulation in a way that's really interesting, right? They've tried to draw kind of this middle line between the US, which has been very regulation averse, and the EU, which has been, you know, kind of the, the queen of regulation <laughs> when it comes to tech. They've tried to kind of forge a middle path. And so they actually have an online safety harms bill right now that's up for consideration. That's getting a lot of debate in parliament that's aimed to try and um, actually really protect young people from some of the internet's harms. I think there are some components of that bill that would just never pass <laughs> First Amendment strict scrutiny. But I think there are other components of that bill that are really interesting, right, and are really designed to try and walk that middle line. They're also doing a lot of really interesting things in the competition space that I think we could potentially learn a lot from, right? And there we don't have to worry too much about the First Amendment. And so that helps us out considerably. So yeah, I think that they're, they're interesting role models, but also just fundamentally different legal regimes. And so it's kind of an ultimately different different result. So switching gears for a little bit, first, congratulations on being one of this year's Rhodes Scholars who's going to Oxford next fall to study technology policy. Can you just tell our listeners a little more about your career journey so far? Yes. First of all, thanks so much for the kind words and the congratulations. It still feels um, very surreal. <laughs> As I said, first got into the cyberbullying and anti-harassment space when I was a teenager. So I... I then really more got into the the entrepreneurship space in my late teens. And so that's defined a huge part of my, my career. And then when I got to college as a university student, I've had the chance to work in federal government on civic tech. I've had the chance um, to do research on civic tech. I've um, also continued to build the technology for various organizations. And then I've also had the chance to volunteer to try and um, educate women, especially in people of color, so that they can enter the technology space and, and help diversify the face of tech. So that's been a little bit of my, my career thus far. And then um, I will just continue to, to rack on the degrees and, <laughs> and do, the, do all the studying next, next fall. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited for that, though, because I think it'll be just an amazing next step in, in being able to do higher order research into these issues in a, in a way that I haven't had a chance to do uh, thus far. So that's, that's been a little bit about my career. So... It's really exciting to hear about the diversity of experiences that you've had. For our younger listeners, such as yourself, what kind of advice would you give for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps and actually establish their own career in public interest tech? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, kudos to you for, for wanting to get into this work and do this work. You're really doing the world's work because we desperately need more people in public interest tech. And so I think it's amazing that you have that interest. My advice, I think, would be twofold. First, I find that people think of public interest tech and sometimes say, oh, that's not for me because they have a certain idea of what public interest tech means, right? The public interest tech that I think dominates our minds and our conversation is like social media, right? Addressing those problems. That's all we've talked about today. But if you are an environmentalist, right, or you are doing work in a completely different field, um, more likely than not, tech either is coming for your field or has come for your field and has created a bunch of uh, different clashes that are that are extremely relevant and require your thinking, right? Doctors, for example, the medical field, huge implications for privacy, right? As a result of new technologies um, that that have completely transformed the physician-patient relationship. Um, and so, my my first piece of advice is just think about, given the field that you're interested in or the work that you hope to do, what the emerging developments are in tech. Maybe do a little research, 
right? Get get schooled, <laughs> right? Learn more about the topics that you're interested in. That's my first piece of advice. And then my second piece of advice is to think about how your skills can factor into potentially building a creative solution or doing research or thinking about how you can be a part of the solution. For me, it was coding because that's what I knew. But there is a certain irony, I think, to a technologist trying to solve a problem that technology created, <laughs> right? I didn't let that stop me, but I, I think it's a good example of the fact that we also need different kinds of skills, right? Addressing the, the social media society clash. I think of artists. I actually know someone who, who makes art um, of what our, our world in this kind of this digital space looks like and how the internet is affecting us. And these images really call attention to these many problems that we, we experience, but we don't really give a second thought to, right? That's a really great example, right, of someone who's engaging um, in this dialogue using their skills. So my second piece of advice is just like, think about like what you're good at. Don't worry so much about any possible way that you could address this problem. The possibilities are endless. You'll just, <laughs> you'll just, at least I found that I was like, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. There's so many ways to tackle it. What do I do? Well, what are you good at, right? Are you, are you interested in the sciences? Are you interested in art? Do you love coding? Do you love literature, right? Do you want to write short stories about the future of the metaverse, right? And the same way that we, we watch, you know, great TV shows about the future of technology and the way it can affect our society. That I actually consider a form of public interest tech work. I, I actually really do because it ignites conversations that are not being had that need to be had. So those are my, my two pieces of advice. And then I think just one last general piece of advice is for, for young people who are getting into this work. I think it's a very uncertain space. And I think that especially for, for women <laughs> and women of color, that can be a little unnerving. Right. We like to have our, our plan year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. And when we don't have the plan or we don't know exactly where something is going, that can be a little unnerving. So I would just say be be willing to embrace the unknown. You're young. You have so much potential. You have so many years of life ahead of you. And I know that right now everything feels so consequential, but you are actually better positioned than perhaps anyone else to take some chances to innovate, to go after and go down rabbit holes that no one else is exploring. And even if you don't strike gold per se, you will learn so much in the process and you will contribute something valuable to this space because people will know, okay, that's not a rabbit hole to go down in the future, right? And that's why we consider all work valuable in research. So that's just a, a just an overarching piece of advice that I probably give to myself that I'm now giving to all of you. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And I mean, just digging into that a little bit, as a person of color, as a woman, you know, you face unique challenges in in breaking into tech in particular and and maybe that's different coming from a university like Harvard but there's all sorts of folks where technology isn't really opening the opportunities up for for mm -hmm. certain students or for certain demographics as as much as they could how would you like to see the tech industry tackle that open up and and make it a lot easier for folks uh like yourself to to break into tech and solve some yeah. of these problems yeah Thank you so much for the question, because I think it's a really important one and, and maybe not one that we talk um, enough about. So I just want to start by saying it's it's funny because I remember, I mean, I wasn't, I, I can't remember, remember, because I was too young. But when I was a baby, when I was a kid, everyone was, as we've talked about, so excited about the internet and about technology because they thought it would democratize the world in two ways. One, it would allow everyone to have a voice, which it has done. But then two, it was going to create this new waves, a wave of economic opportunity, right? That was going to transform the middle class and uplift a lot of people. And unfortunately, <laughs> as you point out, that's not necessarily what we've seen, right? Silicon Valley remains a very male-dominated, elite university-dominated, bro-y, culture-y place. 
that has not done a great job of bringing people that look like me um, to Silicon Valley, but also bringing people who look like me that are much lower on the socioeconomic, you know, uh, ladder or are, are not going to, you know, as wealthy or privileged a school as Harvard, right, into these spaces. And so I, I think the way that tech companies need to think about changing that is twofold. One is education, which to tech companies credit, they've done some of, although a lot of it tends to be more professionalized types of education, right? So for young adults, young professionals, at that time, it's often really hard to make career changes. There are a lot of barriers that, that are happening. So I would love to see the same way that Google lobbies for a lot of things that maybe we're not super excited about in Washington. I would love to see them lobby with that same kind of energy for tech and, and digital education for all young Americans, right, in our schools. So that the same way that we're learning English and math, young people are being equipped early on with the opportunity to, to explore these fields. And that's important, especially because we find that in elementary school, young women actually express more interest in STEM fields than men. But by the time you get to middle school, it flips. Men are now more interested in STEM than women. So it's really important to get there early. And I would love to see more of an investment from tech companies into that kind of early childhood tech education, because I think not only are those skills that will be valuable to them, no matter what they do in life, but it can, it can be a really great opportunity to get young women who would otherwise never consider the field or they get older, and for a number of reasons, they don't consider the field into the space. The second thing that I, I know, and this kind of gets at the fact, right, that we see that jump, right, from, from K, you know, K through five to, to middle school, it's like, why did we see that jump? A lot of it has to do with norms, right? A lot of it has to do with who we see as those backend programmers, right? Who we see as, as people who can fail repeatedly, which is basically what coding is, right? It's just like you fail and you fail and you fail until something works, right? And, and the fact that so many of the spaces in Silicon Valley are, are really laud elitist culture, right? Really laud being for a certain segment of people, right? And I think those kinds of norms then send signals, right, to certain groups that they are not welcome, right? Or they are not right um, for this kind of career pathway. Google probably has an advertising budget that I cannot even begin to imagine. I would love to see companies invest in campaigns and, and work to try and change norms and address stigma and change perceptions. Because until young women in the U.S. and people of color, young people of color in the U.S. are growing up and envisioning themselves in these roles, the same way that other groups and communities are envisioning themselves in these roles, we're not going to see a shift, right? Because if you're providing the education, but a young woman is thinking, oh, but there's no way I could do that, we've only gone halfway. So I, I think that norms are a huge part of it. And I think the tech companies have a huge responsibility to, to promote the right norms, to address norms. When norms are, are dangerous and sexist, potentially illegal, to address those problems. We've seen scandal after scandal in the last couple of years where, you know, it's obvious like tech companies like Uber right? Where women are made to feel extremely uncomfortable in these workplace environments. Like, why would I want to work there? Right? And so I think it's, it's very much a responsibility of tech companies to call out bad norms when they see them and create the right norms. And I think that can have ripple effects that last for, for, for generations. So as we wrap up, this podcast is called How Tech Becomes Law. So given your experience, how have you seen technology and its design create new rules for how society operates? First of all, I just want to say that I love the, the podcast name. <laughs> Thank you for the question. I think here I'd probably, I'd probably have to talk a little bit about the way that I have seen technology kind of create new norms and rules 
around bullying and harassment as being kind of a rite of passage for young people, both here in the U.S., but also globally. And this kind of gets back to something that we've all talked a little bit about earlier um, in the segment, uh, which is this idea of desensitization, right, to uh, the, the problems of the Internet and, and Internet harms. I run an initiative in addition to Rethink called Ask Trish, which is basically an online column where young people every week anonymously submit notes to me um, about challenges that they are having on the Internet uh, and solicit advice on what to do. And I've been doing this for about half of 2021 now, for about six months. And I have received everything from, you know, I am depressed because there's a video of me being sexually assaulted. It's being circulated on social media. And my friends are telling me, like, it's not a big deal. This happens to everyone, but I'm suicidally ideating and I really don't know what to do. Right. I've, I've had messages like that to messages like revenge porn and how do we deal with revenge porn? And I've written articles that are literally like, I'm so sorry. There's no path for recourse. This is extremely common now because that, that's the world that we live in. Right. And, and these are real experiences that young people are having. And so it, it scares me getting these notes from these young people to think that kind of violation of dignity, that kind of violation of respect, this idea that you will have your name torn through the mud. <laughs> you will have things that are private and personal about you exposed. You, you can be harassed and, and literally burned into the ground. And that's just like what the internet is. Like that's normal. That is really scary. And really it breaks my heart when I read these notes. And so I, I think the takeaway there, right, is Tech can play a huge role, I think, in influencing like what we see as something to be morally outraged at, you know? And the fact is, like, there are things that are happening today online that 50 years ago, people just could not, 15 years ago, people could not conceive, right, of, of being okay yeah. with. Wow. Um, but today, suddenly it's okay, or it's normal, or it's part of growing up. And I think we need to, we need to get on that ASAP because... The, the longer it's a rule, the longer it's the norm, the harder it is to change. Well, thank you so much, Trisha. This has been a lot of a lot of fun, definitely very thought-provoking. Thank you so much for joining. And thank you for listening. I'm Dhruv Gupta with Jinyan Zhang, and this was How Tech Becomes Law. Thanks for listening to How Tech Becomes Law. We are supported by the Public Interest Tech Lab. You can find us online at howtechbecomeslaw.org and on social media channels at techbecomeslaw. The music for this podcast was produced by Clarence Yap. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps other listeners discover us. Thanks again for listening and come back next week for another conversation on How Tech Becomes Law.